the sliding doors moment of it petrifies me. It literally petrifies me. I could be in that house right now that we were meant to go and live in. And I think about it all the time. I'm frightened by the alternate universe where I was too scared to quit. Hi, welcome to Knowing When to Quit with Sarah Wyler. This is the podcast where we explore how we navigate our relationship with endings and bringing things to a close. Today's episode is with Tiffany Philippou, podcast journalist and author of Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Tiffany's memoir explores how she navigated her 20s after she lost her boyfriend to suicide while at university. I wanted to bring Tiffany in to talk about her experience writing this book and the things we might do when we ignore the niggling feelings and keep pretending that everything is totally fine. This is your book, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Do you want to share a bit about yeah, what, the, what inspired the book? Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much for having me on. As I said, quitting is very much something. And so much of my work is around unlearning those narratives we've been taught um, and not to quit is one of the big ones. And I think people find quitting really hard. And actually in preparation, I've written a little list of different types of things I've quit. Um, throughout my life Um, so if you want to (laughs) start as a teen I'm I'm ready to go Um, but my book is yeah totally fine and other lies I've told myself and that's a story also of quitting in the sense that it's a story of quitting pretending to be fine and the story opens with my boyfriend uh, Richard who died by suicide when we were 20 year old university students at Bristol And the story tracks a decade of my grief and the impact that had on me. And the reason the book is called Totally Fine is I really tried to pretend to be fine. I couldn't handle the pain. I couldn't, I felt a lot of shame and stigma because of the death by suicide. I also felt weird because I was so young and we'd been together a year and a half or so, year and eight months. And we'd lived together. So how could I not have known? Like there's the all those things. And I felt I just, and I was so young. So I suppressed it all, pretended to be fine. And the book tells a story of what happens when we do that um, and the challenge around shame and not speaking to shame. And without wishing to ruin it for anyone, I do go on a, um, a journey and, and a point when it gets too much and I realize I can no longer... Uh, do that and pretend to be fine and then I kind of go on a process of confronting and facing up to my experience um so that's the story yeah and I'm I'm really curious around the start when you said um you know you just kind of shut it all off what's like what was because this is 2008 right so what were like 14 years ago what was was there anyone offering you support to talk about it like what was the climate like at that time 
Well, so there was a year or so when Richard and I lived together in a shared house. It was me and eight boys, which is mad. Um, and he was suffering from depression. I didn't use the word depression. And I think it's really important to put ourselves in that era because I've been asked a lot of questions. I'm not saying you're doing this, but certain type of media wants to put blame somewhere. And I've been asked a lot of questions that kind of are encouraging me to say, oh, it's X fault, it's university's fault, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is like, we literally didn't use the word depression back then. And we didn't really use words like anxiety or depression. It was all like, I'm sad, I'm stressed. I've got too much work to do. We certainly didn't question uh, or talk about mental health the way we do now. And, you know, again, I kind of think a lot about social media and how many accounts there are. And I know, again, we can, uh, you know, they, they talk about mental health in a certain way, sometimes in a flashy quote-like way, but even still, it feels very prevalent, the kind of mental health conversation, even though it's got a long way to go. Whereas back then we just did not have that language. Also after Richard died, the GP did offer, did offer me counseling, but I wasn't that interested in it. Mm. I was like, what's there to talk about? Like, I just want him to come back. Um, I did have a lot of family support, um, but again, like different era, different time, different backgrounds, like wasn't necessarily, oh, you have to go to grief counseling now. I wouldn't even, I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm. Um, and then I had my close friends from home who were very supportive and showed up and very much the book's a celebration of that friendship. There's no official structures or support if that's what you're you know, seeking. Yeah, I just wondered like how that was for you to go back to uni and like whether anyone spoke to you and like asked you about it and... Yeah, back to uni was awful. Um, Cause I sort of, he died when it was summer holidays and then I had to go back and I was petrified of going back. And I didn't have that many friends at university. I'd studied history. It was like two hours a week. And so I didn't really see my course mates that much. I didn't have that many friends. I very much just had my friends from the halls who I ended up living with. Mm. And as I said, they're mostly boys. I don't know why. I have plenty of female friends. I love women. But for some reason at university, that was how it played out. Somewhere like Bristol, you are left a bit alone, I think. I know other friends at other universities had a bit more smaller groups, regular meetings, like more kind of engagement. Whereas my course, it was also my course because I know the science courses are more engaged. You really were slightly left on your own. Mm. So yeah, I don't think there was that much support, but I should add as well that I, def I didn't seek out support either as part of this kind of like pretending to be fine. Mm. Um, and I didn't, and people, my mum actually, I interviewed her for my newsletter. And she said to me, we took your lead. It was like you were directing. You were very, very controlled and calm and everyone took your lead. And so I do want to take responsibility for the fact that no one talked to me about this thing, but that was very much the energy I admitted into the world. And I was trying to control the experience and people around me. So while at the same time it's awkward and there's stigma, I very much was like emitting, do not talk to me about this vibes. So I do want to take a bit of responsibility as well. And so you said that like you put it, you know, you pretended everything was fine for a long time. What was the impact of that? Yeah, this is so what I the, the second part of the book, which is called running. Is it, I think, is it called running or escaping? Sorry, I could keep doing this. I was on I another. Put it here. What's part I, two I feel called? like it was escaping. 
Was it escaping? Yeah, I think it's escaping. An earlier draft, it was called running. Living's the last one, isn't it? Which I really like. So loving is the first one. Living is the third one. Um, the middle one is running or escaping. And I really should. We get the gist of it. Anyway, the point is running slash escaping. So like, try. I guess the running is the doing and the escaping is what I'm trying to do. But yeah. Um, so I was almost trying to outrun it. And I was using what I call the socially acceptable numbing techniques. Mm. So I was overworking. Um, there's a phase where I become obsessive about exercise and clean eating. Um, I uh, drink too much, but in that way, that's actually was completely normal back then, I think. Um, also, uh, what else did I do? I moved to New York. Again, I was like constantly trying to up the ante because mm. these things would almost like wear off and it would begin to catch up with me. And then I was like, what can I do next? What can I do next? Um, and yeah, there was a numbness. And I, and I actually find reading part two sadder than part one because part one's the what, but there's something sadder about this sort of adrift person in their twenties, emotionally a bit numb, because if you ban yourself from feeling some things, you also ban yourself from feeling good things as well and being a bit detached. And so being in quite, I don't know what the word is like, you know, rubbish relationships, I guess. Um, and just, yeah, not really living fully um, either way. And that kind of numbness and that trying to up the ante in this kind of suppression state, I, I find it really, I find it really sad. Um, yeah. And you, I mean, I also want to like, thank you for your openness in this book. I mean, it was, you were very, very honest about some really, really tough times. Like, how was it to share that with the world? Yeah, um, I I wrote it. Well, this is kind of the paradox. I wrote when I was sitting down and writing it. I was writing it as though no one could, would read it. Otherwise, I'd begin to hold myself back. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, "You can always edit later." And then I kind of didn't because the editorial process is a bit distracting, and um, so I didn't end up sort of going back and being like, "Do I actually want to share that?" Mm -hmm. um, but the paradox as well is, I also wrote it for public consumption, so I, I wanted it to be a story, something people can relate to, something people can take something from. But yeah, I mean, um, it's extremely exposing. It's extremely scary. Um, it's been out for um, when we're recording this about a month or so, and people are still kind of reading it. So it hasn't been, I'm, I'm kind of getting a bit of feedback slowly, slowly. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's terrifying, actually. I don't really know what other words. <laughs> it's really scary to be that honest, but it's valuable. I think there's no point if I'm not. Like, what else do I have to contribute to the conversation or to the world if it's not a kind of searing honesty about these things, even though it is hard to do? And people have responded compassionately. I, I was I was worried that I'd get kind of messages being like, not surprised your boyfriend killed himself, like on Instagram, like that sort of stuff. Sorry, I just... That was my fear. I don't you, I guess, if you're... Yeah. Putting, yeah. And I also, as I was reading it, I was wondering, do you have to get consent from like all of these exes that you talk about and like how has that been I'm guessing you've anonymized everyone but still people must identify themselves in your story there's an awful process back in June where I had to go through every single person who's in the book and send them their extracts but I didn't do so if people weren't in my life anymore and I changed the details and I don't speak to them I didn't contact them mm. Um, and I didn't have to, whereas the people who are in my life who are close to me, 
um, I did send it to. Um, so that would, that would include like my parents, it include um, one of my exes in the book, um, Zach, because we're still friends. So yeah, there was definitely a whole process of having to um, send it to my former bosses at the startup. Like, yeah, it was, it was a really laborious process. And again, it was very exposing and very scary. And it, yeah, there were a lot of difficult conversations that came from it. Um, this is the trouble with memoir. Yeah. And now I await to see whether some of the other exes uncover it and then get in touch. Um, I hope Did anyone veto anything? <laughs> Did anyone what, sorry? Veto anything that you'd written? Um, no, people were really supportive. Um, and just like, yeah, you tell your story, go for it. Like all my friends were really excited to be in it. Um, they were like, oh, if anything, I want to be more in it. Um, but no, there were no vetoes or anything. Um, it was just a really weird thing to have to do that you didn't think that you'd have to do when writing it. And it's just a bit, it is a bit of a weird process. Um, and then some people who I thought might, some people asked for their names changed, who I might not have expected that and stuff like that. Um, but no, no vetoes, nothing like that. So it was okay. Yeah, I mean, I do, I think it's so beautifully written. I told you, like I read it in a weekend and was just like, oh, couldn't wait to get through it. But at the same time was like, wow, this is really heartbreaking, some of this stuff. And, you know, also remembering a lot of parallels in my life of, um, you know, nights out or past relationships. I was like, God, this is really, I don't know if I'd share my story of this. So like, thank you for doing the work and sharing it. I think it's really brave. And like, I wonder how it was, how was it to like, in terms of, your process of of like feeling fine to talk about the grief has it how has it helped yeah well I was silent for 10 years basically I didn't talk about it and the contrast of turning it into your work so owning the narrative and then creating something so I now talk about this thing that happened to me every day basically in some shape or form so the contrast of complete silence and so much of my work is around shame and how it festers when you um, suppress it and don't talk about it. The simple act of talking about the things you most fear and the things you feel most shameful about, it cures them instantly. And so I now get to do that all the time. I get to constantly be healing and sharing. And now I've become so at peace with every aspect of it. There's few questions. I can't think of a question you could ask me about this experience in the book that would topple me, so to speak, because I've sat with it so much. And just that contrast of that silence and the shame. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. And yeah, I feel really pleased that this is the path it's taken. So what were the moments that really pushed you to start talking about it? Um, so for me, the quitting, pretending to be fine came when I just, there was no more running slash escaping left to do. And I did hit a breaking point where it all really flooded back to me. And um, it was, it was it's it's very much that end of part two in the book where it all catches up with me essentially and it's actually my mum who's sort of this like wise insightful oracle <laughs> who said your past has come to, back to haunt you and I then realized that I just could not continue to exist like this um and the and then the the next step is 
well, I kind of begin to dip my toe into therapy, but again, it's scary. Like I canceled loads, didn't want to do it. Like literally went in and was like, I don't really need to be here. You know, it was not a, it was not a like, then she went to therapy, the end, the kind of mental health version of like the Disney film of getting married after meeting the prince. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a whole process, but yeah, it, it just, I just couldn't exist. I couldn't continue. I'd, I'd reached such a low point and, you know, connecting the dots of the why, it, it, I realized I had to face up to this in a shape or, in, in a shape or form. Um, yeah. Did you know that it was because of Richard that you were doing all the running away? Like, was that conscious? No, not at the time, not at the time. It would kind of little pop its head up every so often. Um, he would almost come, you know, pop in and out. It would come back to me. It was this weird thing where I suppressed it and quietened it, but I thought about him, him all the time. I mean, honestly, it was like almost like every hour or something like that. Um, Whereas now, even though I'm talking about it all the time, it's not dominating my thoughts in the same way. But I didn't connect the dots until um, until I went back and rewrote it all. Um, and also at that kind of nadir that I talked about before. Um, but yeah, so it was it was subconscious, but then but then it kept popping up and coming through at kind of random points. And that comes through in the book as well. Those bits where he kind of follows me and, and the ghosts come. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems I, I wasn't sure how much of that in retrospect you're able to piece together. I wonder at the time how conscious that was. It's kind of like you're rewriting his, yeah, his presence in your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, going back and connecting those dots makes me feel so sad. Um, and yeah, looking at that and how we suppress things and how we numb things. Um, yeah, it's a sad, sad, sad realization, I think, to narrativize in that way yeah and like what changed then after therapy and what was talk, talk to us about the living bit the living um I think there's I think there's a quote around like life is more beautiful when we feel feel all of it mm. um and yeah it's very much about the highs and lows of living like being awake allowing oneself to feel and there's a lot of failure in there like job loss I have this embarrassing um, thing with this guy that I'd always liked and we'd slept together and then he sort of disappeared. And I'd really hope he doesn't read the book because that's really embarrassing for him to know how much I cared. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was all these sorts of things that happened since, but it was all like, it's all fine because as long as we admit when we're not fine, accept that life is highs and lows, you have to feel sadness to feel joy, like all these sorts of things. It was kind of learning that um, in the last part of the book. And again, I kind of needed to quit pretending to be fine in order to kind of go on that journey and realize that. Yeah. And do you think you've inspired others to talk more honestly? I hope so. I have also got a podcast called Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, where I'm interviewing people about times that they've pretended to be fine. And we've got um, job loss, ADHD diagnosis, HIV diagnosis, being single and wanting to be a mother, being tricked into losing virginity, um, being cancelled online, like all these breadth of stories, incredible conversations. And there are so many parallels, no matter what the subject is, around 
it's not just what happens to us. It's the shame. It's the stigma. It's how we suppress it. The ways we suppress there's so many parallels, the way that society teaches us to do that and to numb, the way that the simple act of talking about it cures it in an unbelievable way. Like you don't even necessarily have to go to therapy. It's like just saying out loud to someone somewhere. And so hopefully by listening to this podcast, the work continues and people can be inspired by other people's stories and hearing more and more. And even admitting to yourself is a really powerful tool um, and admitting you're not fine. So God, I mean, yeah, if it inspires anyone or if it also helps anyone feel a bit less shame or stigma, then gosh, yeah, that it's all worth it for sure. So I hope so. Yeah, and I just wondered if in your personal life, you found that you're having more open conversations with friends as a, like, as a result of your own process, even without the book. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely really keen to not pretend to be fine. And it's so hard to do. And, and I've interviewed some people for the podcast. Um, we end the show by saying like, is there a smaller or more recent way you pretended to be fine? And one or two have been like, I don't do that anymore. 100% can't think of anything. And I'm like, respect, but I cannot do, I do it on like a daily basis. And so I try so, so hard to talk to friends about small things that I'm not okay about, or maybe I feel shame about, like, who are you to complain about X, Y, and Z, like all this kind of stuff. So I try so hard to do that. And then I also try to create the space for people to do that as well. And I think that's where kind of, you kind of meet in an empathetic space. Um, so yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think in daily conversations um, and with friends, for sure, I think it opens opens this sort of thing up. But let's talk a bit about your relationship to quitting. Like what, um, well, this is a slightly different type of quitting because we're quitting something that potentially was harmful to you rather than quitting something that you were like, oh, I loved pretending everything. Well, maybe you did love pretending everything was totally fine. But I, I'm just interested, like what, when you think about quitting, like what's your, what's your relationship with it or... Yeah, it's um, it, quitting so much. It's so often associated with sort of academic or like career based stuff, because I think we are taught to not quit or it's bad to quit. And as I said, I wrote a little list um, <laughs> and there were, a couple, there, were a couple, there were a couple of things that jumped out to me that I thought were important to talk about quitting that perhaps don't get talked about that much. And my earliest memory of quitting is when I was 17 and I quit the violin. Ooh. <laughs> and I'd I'd played the violin from the age of four and um I was kind of I was all right I was all right at it led a couple of orchestras loved performing loved music like did the piano so I used to stay off school like every night doing music um and when I got to that kind of late teenage stage I wasn't practicing anymore I just wanted to hang out with my mates like all the kind of usual stuff and I remember it being a really hard decision to quit going to lessons because it was like, this is my thing, but I'm not practicing. Like, I'm not doing the thing, but like, there's a lot of prestige around the violin. Like you get to lead the orchestra. Um, I knew I wasn't going to lead the next orchestra. I'd done the kind of junior school, middle school, but someone uh, better came along, which uh, fine. Um, so <laughs> I knew, you know, all good. I knew it wasn't, that wasn't going to happen for me and I wasn't practicing and, it's just so hard to know, like, oh, am I, you know, modern modern speak, like self-sabotaging or like, is it because I won't be the best or like whatever, whatever. And I, but I was, but I did quit. Um, 
and again, I remember when I wanted to quit, I think my dad said something like, we don't quit things in this family. And it's like, okay, cool. Um, immigrant. I don't know if you can tell the kind of immigrant tone there. Um, and, uh, but I was reflecting on it for this podcast. And what happened next was I threw myself into debating and I became chair of debating. I don't know if you can tell, but I was an extracurricular. Like I loved, I, I, academia was like background noise. I like, used school to like do extracurricular stuff and uni as well. And I kind of have that with my job now, like almost like I throw myself into newsletter podcasting. It's almost like extracurricular stuff. <laughs> yeah, very rarely make any money out of it. But, but like, but I threw myself into debating. I loved it so much. And I um, did so many amazing things and just loved it so much. And, and learned so much, like I'm literally using those skills as we are speaking right now, mm. um, that confidence around speaking, it's just so valuable, all, all kids need to be taught it. Anyway, um, and so, I, yeah, so this thing that was so hard to walk away from this identity I'd had from the age of four to 17, but then I uncovered and had space for something new. And so even though it seems, oh, that's a bit of a cop out, quitting at 17, this thing you've been doing for so long. And I remember it being scary, but ultimately I was like, look, I'm not practicing. I'm wasting your money on the classes here. I don't want to go to orchestra anymore. And um, yeah, so that was my first my first quitting story. And I what I love about that is that you have seen what came in its place. And I always say to people who are thinking about quitting, it's like, don't worry about what you're leaving behind. Think about what it creates space for and what new things could come in. Like if otherwise we're holding on to stagnant energy, it sounds like you were really yeah. in tune with what you needed and what you'd got from it. Well, I didn't, you're so right. I wasn't able to imagine a new future. Like I wasn't able to do that when I was pondering quitting. And the other quitting story I have is this is a real, this is like, this is a real example of what you just said, like not being able to imagine the space and how it gets filled and you imagine it being bad or empty. So my other quitting story is when I was in my, when I was about 30, I was in a relationship and it was very much like, we're meant to live together. We're going to move in together. We're going to get married this year as an ex year. We're going to have kids the year, like blah, blah, blah. Like everything planned. Um, it's meant to be the one was well, in the relationship, not necessarily the person being the one. And from very early on, I knew it wasn't right. I knew it in my bones. I could just, I knew it, but I thought, oh, maybe this is as good as it gets. Like maybe this is what it's like. Like you read so much stuff about like, you know, how relationships should be. And they almost make them sound like this quite like laborious, um, <laughs> you know, it's like this thing you have to like work at and like the passion and love fades, but but it's like, you need a friend for life, blah, blah, blah. And we were great mates, you know? And um, I'd lie awake at night and I just knew it was wrong, but I was like, maybe this is it. And, I, and my imagined alternative was emptiness. It was either being alone, it was finding something, not finding something better. It was regret. Um, again, with quitting, we fear regret so much. What if this is the wrong decision? And I was agonizing over it and it drove me insane. Like the doubts drove me insane. And eventually once I did quit it, I did it very suddenly. It was when it was when I was faced with it was after I'd given up the lease on my flat I was renting. We were meant to go and live together. It was when that reality came to me. That's when I quit, which is why I really identify with people who plan weddings and then last minute, you know what I mean? But last minute, don't make it down the aisle because it's that re once you're really forced to do something. 
And I feel frustrated because six months in, I knew it wasn't right, but I kept it going for another sort of year or so after that. And again, that like, that that fear of making the wrong decision, that those doubts, that kind of remunerating about whether or not it's the right decision. Once the decision was made and once I quit, I never looked back. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And what is it like, what is it for you? Where you, how do you know the difference now between like, I'm just a bit, this is just a bit uncomfortable, but I need to persevere and like, I know and I need to trust. That is an excellent question. I think that will be a work in progress. Yep. <laughs> um, I think about how one has to grind through with like creative work, for example. So say I've been doing my weekly newsletter for two and a half years. Um, I've created podcasts in that time, released a book in that time. You have to really grind. Mm. You have to keep going. You have to continue selling your work, creating your work, you know, and, and you don't necessarily get the feedback that you want or it doesn't feel good enough or you maybe you don't make enough money from it, whatever it, maybe you don't get enough subscribers, whatever it looks like. But it's not, I do not question whether or not to continue doing my newsletter because I enjoy waking up on a Wednesday and writing my newsletter. So I don't question it. So I'm beginning to think if the doubts are there, just to compare to my relationship, to compare to my violin, if the doubts are there and you're questioning, should I quit? Probably the answer is yes. Yeah. Well, I always say that the desire to quit shows us something isn't working about the situation. Now, you know, maybe with your violin, it was that you actually didn't want to be in an orchestra anymore and you wanted to play in a folk band or, or maybe actually it was a different instrument or, but, you know, it sounds like that was the right choice. But I, 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 yeah, the other thing I talk about is like how fight, flight and freeze show up in quitting. So some, I, I feel like we all have a, a quitting tendency. So some people, when they want to quit, are like, no, I am staying. I am not like, that's the kind of fight, right? Like I'm going to make this work some people going to paralysis the kind of freeze and like oh my god i don't know what to do so i'm just going to stay here and like not think about it and some people get out and they do that flight and all of those three are good things to do in certain situations like sometimes we need to push on like sometimes we need to hold it out wait it out and sometimes we need to get out but i think when we're stressed we take we often make we we make the wrong decision so yeah i like I think I'm quite like flight if I'm stressed, like I really want to, I just want to get out of it. I don't know if like those resonate with you in terms of what you've seen your pattern to be or does it depend on the situation? It, it does depend. I think um, for me, there was a lot of avoidance with the relationship situation. I have, I have a much more, I had a much more confidence career-wise than um, with relationships, I'd say, I think at work, I was like, oh yeah, I'm great at work. And then relationships, I'd almost be like this little scared, uh, little mouse, so to speak. Um, so with work, it might be flight. Mm. Um, but saying that when I got fired from my job, um, I should have quitted that a while before, but again, it was that paralysis because I couldn't imagine the alternate future. And I'm not sure if you can imagine it until you've given space and quit so that's the other thing right like if you know what you're going to do instead then it's easy to quit if you don't know what's going to come then it's quite hard to imagine the alternative so what you imagine is quite bad because your brain as you know fellow CTR your brain is designed to keep you safe so it's going to tell you to keep doing what you're doing so it can predict that and that's safe 
so the future you imagine is negative often or a space um so yeah I did stick at a job I mean they, they booted me out because I was obviously bringing the, <laughs> the energy of but lots of jobs don't do that like they just let you stay there and again it's like I should have quitted that earlier so so I think you know I think I and I tried to fight I remember trying to like I'm gonna make this work but actually I just couldn't think of what else to do which I couldn't do until I left yeah and like I remember you said in the beginning of the book that you quit your newspaper in the final year of uni and that sounded quite dramatic because that sounded like it was your whole life right again a quite a random thing you ended up doing but it also sounded like it was really fulfilling for you so I'm curious how grief or your experience of grief played into that decision to quit I see that as a bad decision um so I, I see that as very much grief driven flight slightly self-destructive that wasn't a positive quit story like it was my life um it met, meant my exit was quite bitter kind of destroyed relationships with the people I did the paper with um so that was more like I was all over the place and, and in flight mode I guess as you just discussed um but yeah I couldn't see anything positive but yeah so that it's it's hard isn't it like when is it when is it the right decision to quit it's, it's a tough one Mm. and this idea of like admitting you're not totally fine part of that is like we avoid that when we want to quit like it's 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 uncomfortable to voice maybe this relationship isn't working maybe I'm unhappy in my job because then you might have to do something about it yeah and that's hard um and it's scary and it's unknown um but once you once it's once you do the thing and you come out of it and then you create the new the new the new future then it's very you can I does anyone ever regret quitting was a question I had while listening to your show well you know um the the episode one is when I get interviewed by one of my coaches and she asked me that and I'm like I can't think of anything which must mean that even if at the time I did I've now moved on <laughs> Well, this is what I mean about because because I'm in a relationship now and I keep coming back to the relationship example, but the sliding doors moment of it petrifies me. It literally petrifies me. I could be in that house right now that we were meant to go and live in. And I think about it all the time. I'm frightened by the alternate universe where I was too scared to quit. But with that, I had doubts the whole time, whereas in my current relationship, I don't have doubts. And so I know what it looks like to not be in that turmoil. And so without wishing to oversimplify it, I do wonder whether one ever does regret quit quitting stuff, whether actually we do need to encourage people to be a bit more comfortable with the discomfort of quitting. Your question is like, what if we just quit everything that we weren't sure about? Like, what would that look when like? You, when you put it like that, it sounds, it sounds yet yeah, not quite right, does it? I don't know. Yeah. So it, because it's nuanced, isn't it? It's like, there are some people I think who do have a tendency to, like you were talking about the self-sabotage. I, I was living, I, I, yeah, I gave myself a question a couple of months ago of like, what if I only said yes to things that were like a full body yes? Like, because that's the other side of quitting, I think. It's saying yes to the right things so we don't need to quit as much. We're often quitting so much because we're doing things we don't want to do. And that's where there's like, oh, why did I say yes to these drinks? Or why did I why have I signed up for this client when, you know, all of these things, right? So I was like, what if 
it's actually the other side of that, which is about finding the joy, finding the resonance. And then from that place, when you're quitting, it's because something has come to an end or is not working, but it's not because it was the wrong thing in the first place. But that's hard to do. And, you know, I was kind of bringing job offers were coming in through a filter and I was like, well, it's not technically <laughs> full body, but I have said, I do. you know, it's really hard, I think, to also say, to have that kind of real high standard for everything you do in your life and things can change. So, you know, you love the violin and then you got to a point where you're like, nah, it's not my thing anymore. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think about picking up the violin again. That's the other thing, right? Like nothing's ever irreversible, but I've, I've been living my life career wise with the full body. Yes. Till quite recently, because I get quite a lot of requests for, um, you know, obviously because the book's come out and there's requests that come such as this one for this conversation, no hesitation, full body. Yes. I want to have conversations like this. This is what we do it for. And then I get ones where I'm like, Oh, I'm not sure maybe. And, and then you just, it, that's a no. And actually aside from whether or not these are the right decisions, it just makes your life so much easier to move through it with that decision framework. And that just makes life lighter. Absolutely. Also, going back to the violin, I also learned the violin till I was 18. And in lockdown three, I decided to pick it up after 20 years. And I bought myself the Four Seasons, you know, Vivaldi, and I throughout the whole of winter. Wow. Yeah. I, I played every day. And then I did a performance to my housemates at the end of it. It was terrible, but I did it, got through it. And then I put it back in the box and haven't played it for a year. But it was a really nice reconnect. So definitely reconnect with your violin. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's all going to still be in you. And it might, I found I had a different relationship with it now as well. I was like, oh, music, hi. <laughs> Rather than like, God, I do my practice. Well, that's like education when you go back to it yeah. in adulthood. You're so much more studious. Um, well, I am anyway. Um, so yeah, it's hard to appreciate these things when you're younger. What about New York? Because you had a, yes. I love the bit in the book where you talk about going to New York because you're like, I love it. I really felt you were just like, I don't know, I'm just so happy here. And then something changed. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's so I'm just, yeah, all the book ones are coming back to me as well. Like quitting the MBA one is another oh, one. Yeah, but yeah. Um, um, so New York. Yeah. So oh, this is the thing with New York. It, is the most amazing place until it becomes the worst place. And it really is. And I really tried to captivate that emotional experience of coming to New York and loving it. And I really loved it. And then when it turns in on you and suddenly everything that seemed amazing, it can suddenly be this like very harsh, dark, messed up place. Um, I have mild regret about quitting New York <laughs> without wishing to flip what I was saying um because again that was a decision made in the flight mode so you separating that out freeze flight and fight I've actually found it really helpful to go back and revisit my quitting because on the one hand perhaps it was the right time for me to meet leave New York but again like with the student newspaper that you brought up it, I left it in a certain way that wasn't, um, it wasn't, it was a flight, it was a flight decision made in stress driven by grief. So again, that's one of those quitting decisions 
that doesn't fully sit right with me. I, part of me wishes I'd given New York a bit more time, but then at the same time, like it really wasn't working for me. Like I was broke and miserable. So maybe it was the right thing, but I, I don't feel good about that decision in that same way with the student newspaper thing. Um, the decision I did feel good about quitting in, which is also in the book is quitting to do an MBA. Yeah. Um, and you and you got a lot of money from shares of your first startup that you were part of, right? Which also was really interesting in terms of that didn't necessarily solve you then, oh, I know now I know what to do in my life. Like, it, I mean, I heard from your book, it actually put some pressure on, I need to do something with this, which- 100%. This is the thing, right? When you remove the stresses or the problems of like the base level stuff, whether that's like money or living situation or looking for a relationship, whatever it might be for you, um, and you and you fulfill those things, you're like, oh shit, I've got to like be proactive about what I do now. Because when money was an issue and I was hustling for money, that was just what I had to do. And so when I got money, I was like, oh, I have to make a conscious choice about what to do next. And it has to be a good choice instead of like drifting from job to job. And it is a, it is a pressure. Like, it, and again, one of the things about sort of not pretending to be fine is admitting when things that are positive or good in your life are hard and weird and difficult because they open up, they, they create new problems. Um, one of the things I struggled with massively is um, I was in a house share. Um, I've, I've always worked from home since going freelance. I like to work by myself because I'm either writing during recordings or like on phone calls. So it doesn't really suit me to be sat with someone else all day. And, you know, pandemic happened, housemate worked from home, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I've last week or so I've moved um, and my boyfriend goes to work every day, by myself all day, every day. Amazing. But now I've got space, you know, like space enters. And I guess if I come back to that quitting thing, you're kind of, if you quit something, you're creating um, space. And sometimes that space allows other uncomfortable thoughts or like creates new problems. So again, like, sorry to come back to the money thing. It, 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 it was a good thing and it gave me freedom and it means we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if that hadn't happened. So it's good, but the space and the pressure to fill that space with the right thing is, is scary. Yeah, the creative constraint of not having all the options in the world. Yeah, and with regards to the MBA, quitting again like it took me I, it was that I, I wonder yeah it's like I, I think what I was doing is what I used to do in work is I try and escape myself I try and numb and I'd have a goal and I'd be really focused on it and I failed the MBA exams twice you're meant to fail them once or so but the second time it wasn't just like I just missed it I like massively crashed and again, it was like a body thing where the security guard was like, because it was obvious I'd sort of messed it up, was like, oh, you can always take it again, dear. I mean, the whole thing's a racket. You can keep taking the test if you spend loads of money. Like, but I almost wanted to like get rid of my money, which is another oh, yeah. weird psychological thing. But um, I remember saying to him, no, I can't. And again, it's that body in that moment. I knew that this had to stop. I had to stop relentlessly taking this exam that quite frankly, my brain was not built for and that's fine it's built for other things and I and I just had to yeah it was just I, I remember saying to the security guard I can't and it's like listening to that 
body I know you have an episode about intuition yeah like listening to that body that like gut visceral reaction because it is there and it's like allowing to allowing one to access that yeah yeah I think it's like it is the most powerful tool we have for knowing when to quit I quit a master's in October I applied for a master's and I went for a week at Goldsmiths actually and um I was a full body, like, I need to not do this. But again, I was quest that time I questioned, like, am I just not wanting to put the work in? Like, there were so many stories, like, and actually in the end, like, I, again, I have not regretted it once and I've ended up doing CTI, but I did think I wanted to do it. It's, it's so tricky, this feeling of like, what does it feel like? You have to keep remembering what it feels like to really do stuff you want to do. Because actually some people have never had that. I have a really, uh, you've just made me think of a recent quitting that I actually feel a bit bad about, but <laughs> this, is this is like, so I recently quit volunteering and that's a, re and the reason I thought of that is because you said, oh, is it that I don't want to do the work? Mm. And we do associate not quitting with that virtuousness of keep going. And I think that's why it shows up so much in work contexts, but I, um, I was doing volunteering. It was, um, when I signed up, I hoped you'd like go to an office and all that kind of stuff and be somewhere with people because I'm at home on my own all the time. But actually it was like all, all online. Um, the person training me was sort of on Slack, didn't even like, you know, have a video hello or anything. And it was very, um, it was very upsetting. You were talking to people on the front lines of difficult stuff, uh, young people. It was quite it was difficult. It was difficult. And so I was by myself. And I, but I also found, four hours sitting at my desk continuously on shift I found it really really tough and it was that thing where I was like I hate this I'm dreading this but I'm a bad person because I can't be asked to do it and it's an important thing to do and it's good for people to do and so I found that really tough but when I did release myself from it again I'm at, it's actually on pause I can always go back to it but when I released myself from it it did feel did feel like the right decision but it was hard it was really hard I really hear that and and I also think that there are types of volunteering that probably would feel enjoyable for you maybe yes. not easy but enjoyable and I know people that have done like calls like Samaritans and stuff and they really like it's hard but they really get a lot from it you know my mum organizes like volunteer walks for people like disadvantaged people where she lives and like really enjoys that and like you know it's hard but it's it's nourishing and I do think I, I was reading a really good book earlier this year called the courage to teach when I was supposed to go back into teaching for a bit and he talks about how it's like a violent act to do something that we don't want to do to stay in a job we don't want to do and we may feel that we're doing good for the world but it is a violent act to ourselves and to the people we're coming into contact with and that really we should be questioning the things that don't feel joyful this this narrative that it's got to feel hard and arduous and that's what real work is i think it's bollocks i yeah. think if you quit that <laughs> yeah and and again you know when you talk to people about it they're like oh it's this amazing thing you're doing and then the shame of having to be like actually i couldn't hack it isn't nice um whereas actually perhaps we should live in a world more where someone should say well, does it bring you joy and then you say no, because as you're right, the fact that there's volunteering that would suit me better makes me feel so much better. But when you go around and speak to people, 
not the individual's fault it's that ingrained narrative things are supposed to be hard things are supposed to be difficult whether that's work or volunteering or as I said before like relationships with everything's meant to be work and you put the hard work in you get the reward that's the kind of narrative of capitalist society and it's just not true like does it bring you joy I think it's a really simple framework of deciding whether or not to quit absolutely and there's a I've seen a thing on LinkedIn before I can't remember who it was but it, it might be Stephen Bartlett and it says don't quit because it's hard quit because it sucks and I think that's such a good distinction like there's there's you know I I was a teacher for three years and it was really hard work but I really enjoyed it for a while like I was exhausted and I got a lot from it but then when it started to be like detrimental to my well-being and I was like miserable every day then that shifts, that shifts into like, this is so, this is just not good for anyone. Um, and I think that again, it's that distinction of like, by quitting, you're not saying I don't ever want to work hard or put work into things. You know, you write a weekly newsletter, you have a podcast, you've written a bloody book during a pandemic, you obviously work hard. Well, yeah. I was just thinking, I was thinking like, to, to people out there who are saying, oh, it's because I don't want to work hard. It would actually be helpful to visit times and things you do work hard at and remind yeah. yourself that you are, you do work hard. Um, and one, because I loved Lennon Doyle's quote, like we can do hard things. And I say it to myself all the time when I'm like psyching myself up to, it's really scary going into a bookshop, bookshop and being like, hey, um, I wrote a book. Um, can you stock it please? Frightening. But I'm like, okay, we can do hard things. Like let's go in the shop, Tiffany. Um, but again, reminding oneself that all of us do hard things all the time. So the fact that that's such a perfect quote, the fact you don't want to do something because it sucks isn't a detriment, isn't like I'm a bad character who's lazy. But for some reason that creeps in. It really does. So I think, yeah, it's helpful to think about times that you do work through hard things. Yeah. And the paradox is that when something is real joy, it won't feel like hard work you know, we're sitting here having a conversation. This feels really joyful for me, really flowing. And, but it is work, you know, we're taking time and we're discussing and we've set it up. And, but sometimes we, it, when we do start to go into more of joy, that can be the trade-off. It, it, or we don't often get that feeling of like, I have slogged at this in the same way. And that is what we've been trained to, to like receive as a sense of our worth. Like, have I really slogged? Have I suffered? Suffered, yeah. What is, there's some religion there, isn't it? Is it Protestant? I don't know. <laughs> there's something religious in it. Again, it's that hard work narrative. Like I suffer, I make my money because I suffer. And then you have to suffer, you know, you know, managers who are like, I suffered. Like, is this something like, everyone needs to stop suffering and <laughs> being so hard on ourselves and spread, spread more joy. Um, but I think what you were saying about the relationships through like the fact that, well, you know, they're just hard and they take, they take work. And yes, that is true. But I think you have to question like, how hard is this? Like, is this normal to be this unhappy? And are you, and do you want to put up with it? You know, I think that's, everyone has also different things they need in their life. And like, you just have to own, like, for me, I don't want to do this anymore. And like, I do think we should be celebrating quitting more. I, I, one of the things, this is like a really new idea, but I wanna, I'm exploring the idea of being like an end of project doula. So, you know, like you have the like end of life doulas and like actually giving people a way to, when they do decide to quit something, especially with like projects, or maybe it's like a newsletter you don't wanna run anymore. And to actually have a ceremony for that and have a ritual, because I think that there's so much, 
it, it just feels like this just like just dissipates. And I feel like if we could really celebrate and end things on a high and be like, yes, this was an amazing thing and I don't want to do it anymore. I think more people would feel okay quitting. Yeah, and I think it would almost be like a funeral where you celebrate the thing that occurred. And again, once you're ready, because there's a bit of a grief process, there's a bit of a loss. Um, it's something I'm actually writing about in today's newsletter. Um, but, but endings are actually beginnings. And when you're able to see an end as a beginning, you become very liberated and very excited. I think that's a brilliant idea. I think people need that. So yeah, end of project doula. Yeah, thanks, Val. This is the first I've shared it on, on the air. So yeah, I think endings are a beginning, endings are transition, um, endings are change. Um, I've been running a, through, for two years, I've been running moon circles every new and full moon. And I've had got a community of about 100 people that come not all of them every time, but we've got a WhatsApp and I've decided to stop running them. And so tonight we're having like a final ceremony, but I've invited everyone to bring something that they have felt they want to bring to a close from the last two years. So it's not like not necessarily about the moon, but um, so everyone's coming and we're having a bit of a like release ceremony for things. I just think, yeah, it's so important to like, to alchemy, I see it as an alchemy. Um, do you feel with some of the things that you quit that they did have an ending, like a celebration or a ritual? No, and I think they would be nice to do that more. I think it would be nice to think about quitting not as failures, but as bringing something to a close. And yeah, I love that idea of people coming and bringing something they want to quit. Because I might give that a bit of thought when we get off this uh, meet, because this is all about the time when I quit pretending to be fine. What else could I quit moving forward that would serve me? I think that's a great way to think about it. And then, you know, I just randomly thought of, you know, in Friends, is it Friends when they have a, when Rachel has a breakup and they like burn like mementos from the, the, the relationship? I almost wonder having ceremonies at the end of relationship, the end of project, whether it's burning photos or whatever it looks like for you, probably archiving on Instagram in this era. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea. And I think that could really help reframe our relationship with quitting and seeing it as the beginning of something new. Yeah. Well, it's giving, it's like they have had a, it has had a life of its own. So it needs its ending and it needs to be honored and yeah. Lots of great chats today. Thank you, Tiffany. That was that was very interesting. What are your what's your big bits of advice for people listening going, oh, I've definitely got something I'm pretending is fine. And I don't really want to, yeah, move on to the new phase. Say out loud that it's not okay. Find your people to say it to. Some people um aren't able to deal with that for whatever reason, um, but there will be people who can. So find the people you can say, I'm not fine to. Don't feel shame, because we feel a lot of shame, like, oh, it's too small an issue. Like, it doesn't matter. I even felt with big issues, such as my grief, that it was too small an issue. Mm. So actually, we always, we often think that. So no matter how small it feels to you, say it out loud, find your people to speak it to, admit it to yourself. And that's the first step. And, the, and that might be the first step towards the path of quitting something. So it really is as simple as having conversations. 
And what are your, what are you taking from this conversation around quitting? So much, <laughs> so much about what you said around the framework of, am I flight? What's the, my, am I stress? What's the mindset? Is this actually fear or am I telling myself I have to suffer? I have to slog. And that makes me a good person. I do think if there's any doubts at all and you're questioning and there's no joy, then that needs examination. Again, these decisions can come become very easy if you break them down and you face that fear. Maybe it's fun to imagine what amazing outcomes could come in that space when you fear what comes next and begin to romanticize and dream. Um, so yeah, so much helpful. And it's all come from this chat. So brilliant. Thank you. I've got a framework now to move, a quitting framework to move forward with. So thank you. You're so welcome. I actually do have a quitting framework as well called the quitting quadrant, which I can send you. Um, it's a medium post about it, but it's kind of helps you identify what's going on when you want to quit. And it really does bring in that thing of how is, are you even interested in it? Because if you're not like, that's probably <laughs> affecting it. Like, mm -hmm. It's even something you care about. And um, so you've obviously got your book, you've got your podcasts and your newsletter, anything else that you want to promote and shout? Um, no, those are the three main joys that I have no hesitation about continuing. Um, so yeah, definitely find me through those mediums. I show up most consistently on my newsletter. I'm more sporadic on Instagram and it's that same thing. There's no question for me of the joy of writing to my newsletter subscribers every week. Whereas with other social channels, I don't feel that same full body joy. So yeah, if you want to keep up to date with me, my newsletter is where I am at. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Tiff. Thank you for having me. You gotta know when to hold I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Tiffany Philippi. You can stay in touch with Tiffany by signing up to her newsletter, tiffanyphilippi.substack.com. Her book, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself, is out now, and you can listen to her podcast of the same name. This will be our last episode of 2022. So thank you so much for being one of our listeners of the first year of the Knowing When to Quit podcast. If you've enjoyed the show and you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review or rating the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'll be back with more inspiring conversations in 2023. And until then, wishing you a wonderful holiday season. See you soon. You gotta know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done